Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the High Vibration Living Podcast. I'm your host, Chef Whitney Aronoff, founder of Starseed Kitchen and High Vibration Foods. Join me for conversation where we learn about food, wellness, travel, and spiritual concepts for high vibration living. Only you know what your body needs. Let this be the reminder that you have the power to tap in and know the food, self-care, and spiritual practices that will best serve you. I will be sharing my knowledge and learning with you from experts providing insight into nourishing all the layers of you, the physical, emotional, spiritual, and etheric bodies, so you can feel your best and live your dreams. Let's get started. I have the great pleasure today of chatting with Chef Elliot Prague. Chef Elliot Prague is Dean of Student Affairs and Career Services at the Institute of Culinary Education in New York City. And I was lucky enough to have him as a chef instructor when I attended the Natural Gourmet Institute. Chef Elliot is a much beloved chef instructor um, and original department head of the Health Supportive Culinary Arts Program at ICE, and he has more than 22 years of experience teaching recreational and professional cooking classes, specializing in local, whole, seasonal, and organic foods. His culinary background includes years as the chef owner of a catering company, followed by eight years as a multi-client personal chef, and nearly two decades teaching a variety of classes at the Natural Gourmet Institute. Chef Elliot also writes on healthy eating and food trends for publications, such as Vegetarian Times, and develops recipes in commercial, educational, and publishing contexts. He's completed professional development in international bread baking and is skilled with health-supportive recipe development and preparation. I think I'll just stop there and let you finish introducing yourself through our conversation today, Chef Elliot. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, it's funny, bios. (laughs) (laughs) Thumb you up really quickly there. Yeah, so uh, it's weird. It's a weird time because I just stopped teaching about a month ago. That, it happened. Now I'm a dean, you know, so I have a very different type job. I still do some things like help people. I like that, but uh, it's very different. Uh, I, you know, I never contemplated I would stop teaching. I thought I'd finished my career with that, but I'm something new now. Well, congratulations (laughs) on your promotion. Very well deserved. Thank you. Thank you. So what's the difference between what you do now as the Dean of Student Affairs at ICE versus what were you doing as you were teaching their health supportive program? Right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, until recently, I was teaching eight hours a day, two four-hour classes, and I was also administrating the program. I was taking care of the curriculum, making, you know, updating it, making sure it was still relevant. Uh, And now I spend my days just sort of troubleshooting student problems, helping people find externships in restaurants. Uh, I am no longer, I'm very, very proud of health supportive culinary arts and a huge supporter, but I'm no longer just the representative of health supportive students. 
I represent all the students now. Wow. How many students are at ICE? I think at any given time, about 350. Wow. That's a lot. And really yeah. amazing that there's always that many people going through a culinary program. Yeah, I know there are a lot of students on hand here, so uh, it's big. Well, for people that may not be familiar with you or ICE or the Natural Gourmet Institute, would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit and explaining how you became a culinary teacher? Yeah, sure. So until the age of 35, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And around that time, I had an introduction from my mom, of all people, to macrobiotics, which she was just learning about. And that was very popular way back, even before, actually this started before uh, 1995. It's even earlier than that. But uh, she gave me some books to read. I had no idea uh, about nutrition and I never thought before about the connection between food and health. I just, it was not on my radar. I didn't know how to cook, but I became very fascinated with that idea. And in reading, I eventually came across the founder of Natural Gourmet Institute's book called Food and Healing. And then I realized she had it in reading it that she had a school in New York. And I was like, well, now I know what I want to do. I want to go to cooking school. It was just like a huge leap. I was also in a point in my life where the last thing I did before I went to culinary school was I was a management consultant and I loathed doing that. And I went to law school and I loathed that. So um, this was like something, the first thing I think I was ever really excited about. And I went to, I, you know, I'm from Detroit. So I moved to New York to go to Natural Gourmet Institute and that just changed everything. And just to round out the biography, I attended the school. I loved it. I was like, this place is kooky, but it's home to me. I love it. And then from there, uh, I worked in restaurants, you know, to get that experience. And then I realized uh, I liked New York a lot, but I couldn't afford to live in New York on what they paid in restaurants, for God's sake. So uh, I started doing private and personal chefing, which turned into catering, um, and all within this health supportive sphere. Uh, and I'll talk about natural gourmet in a second. And then from there, uh, I had an opportunity that got my foot in the door at natural gourmet to teach some public classes that turned into professional classes that turned into full-time employment. In the middle of there, I ran away to, to Bulgaria for two years. Uh, I was invited by a publisher to open a plant-based farm-to-table style restaurant in Sofia, Bulgaria. That was way back in 2003 to 2005. But then I came back and I said, by the time you knew me, I'd been well settled as a full-time instructor and curriculum person for NGI, Natural Gourmet. And uh, then NGI closed, sadly, in 2018 for financial reasons, like so many smaller schools. And we merged into, or our curriculum was purchased by uh, Institute of Culinary Education. And here that program is called Health Supported Culinary Arts. And that's where you find me now. Natural Gourmet was a very special place uh, founded by Anne-Marie Colbin in, uh, well, you could say in the late 70s when she taught in her home, but by the 80s, she had that home on 21st Street uh, where you went to school. Mm -hmm. And it's a really special place. I think it's the only school, it was the only school. See, I still talk about it in the present tense, but students still talk about it. But um, yeah, the, the school lasted for over 40 years and it taught many students about uh, the healing properties and the health benefits of whole foods, mostly plant-based, all that stuff that Michael Pollan talks about, Anne-Marie talked about, you know, 20 some years before him, if not more than that, I haven't done the math, 
but yeah, um, you know, he got a lot of credit, but Amory never cared about credit. I asked her that once. I'm like, does it bother you that Mike Pollan was the one that everyone says like, oh, that's where we learned about plant-based food. She's like, I don't care how the message gets out so long as it gets out. But as you know, uh, Natural Gourmet was a small school, three kitchens, three nice kitchens, but three kitchens nonetheless. And uh, it was like a family and it was a beautiful place. The instructors were super knowledgeable about uh, plant-based cuisine and about healing. And I don't know, just a, there was, there's never been any place like it. And I wonder if there ever will be again. I know it was such an amazing little spot within New York City. I feel yeah. really lucky that I got to go to the safe home every day while I was living in New York City. It didn't make it feel like I was in a big city. It felt like I was in a, a really wonderful community. Yeah, that, it always had that. And there's, a, there's no duplicating that, that. It had a certain authenticity and an intimacy that you're just not going to find too many places. Um, students still, I, I look on social media, still they're people from 10, 15 years ago, still posting pictures of their class and saying, this was the best time of my life. I'll always remember this. You know, it made me so happy. So it was cool to be part of that. I feel the same way, but it might be because I went to culinary school around the same age you did. You know, mm -hmm. I was in my thirties and I knew that was really the path I wanted to go down. So when you're in school, learning about something that you really want to be learning about and things that affect every layer of your life, Mm -hmm. um, it's a profoundly exciting and impactful time that you will never forget. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I also found it so interesting that I had to go to culinary school to learn how to properly prepare food for myself. That's what I found so fascinating is I grew up in a family that cooks, um, but there were layers to cooking that I just didn't even understand were, were necessary, um, in order to make it healthy, like washing rice like soaking right. grains, you know, by adding kombu or a bay leaf to cooking beans. Um, right. Yeah. So things. so. Uh, yeah. The, the, yeah. There was an aesthetic at the school, like all culinary schools had, you know, food had to be beautiful looking, but then there are all the things that enhance the nutrition and the bioavailability of the nutrition, et cetera. Yeah. It was really special knowledge, very steep too, in sort of, uh, not just Western nutrition, but sort of, uh, what we used to call right brain theories like uh, macrobiotics and Ayurveda, which I love that stuff. So yeah, there was a lot to learn. Yeah, there is a lot to learn. Um, so what's some of the curriculum that transferred over to ICE? Well, largely the entire program came. All we had to do to it, ICE has a different day. Um, Natural Gourmet had a very civilized nine to four day with a one hour lunch. So you were in class, I believe six hours. Here you're in class four hours, one period. So all we had to do was move uh, content around. Um, the program has still evolved. I think it's as good and improving even from when we did it only because, you know, that's what happens when you do things again and again, you're like, oh, this could be done so much easier or better if we do it this way. So it's still evolving. Um, but I, you know, you would recognize most of it if you came here and you'd be like, you might even be a little jealous, like, Oh, where did these recipes come from? We didn't have these, you know, so yeah. we have worked on it, but it's essentially uh, what you learned, uh, maybe minus some of the things that probably needed revision, you know, uh, and, and maybe those things too, some people would lament that they're not there anymore, but essentially it's the same program. 
The only thing that I would change if I had to go uh, back in time and change my culinary school experience is to change the season I was in school because I love fall vegetables and fall food. Yeah. yeah. So I wish I could have been in, in, in culinary school at NGI during that time so I could have gathered those recipes. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely my favorite time to eat too. Actually, spring, summer, summer is all that fruit in the Eastern seaboard, but um, yeah, the vegetable profusion in the fall is to me superior to what you get the rest of the year. So yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, and especially special. on the East Coast, uh, you know, I'm yeah. in California and you're, the produce on the East Coast this time of year is spectacular. Oh, wait. Where are you in California? I'm in Laguna Beach. Oh, God, it's so beautiful there. God, God bless you. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, very similar to like you mentioned, you know, I got out of culinary school. I was in my mid 30s and the thought of working in the restaurant industry and paying for rent in New York City you know, it stressed me to extreme. So yeah, it's very difficult to do unless you want to live with roommates the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something I absolutely would have done if I had been a different age when I graduated from culinary school, but having right. lived, having lived a corporate life in a city, I knew what it took. So I decided to, to go back home to start my culinary career. I thought it would just be a little bit easier of a right. had to, to launch from. Right. Okay. So now that you've stepped away from working full-time as a teacher, what are right. some of the classes that you reflect now that you just loved teaching? Oh gosh, I have so many, but um, I love teaching bread. Can't eat it like I used to. <laughs> it has a different, now that I, you know, I'm 63, it has a different effect on my body. Actually, I feel much better if I don't eat too much of it, but I love the process of making bread. Um, I love sea vegetables. I could do that all day long, just cook different sea vegetable, you know, seaweed dishes. Um, yeah, I don't know. There were so many classes I loved. I, I like the international cuisine classes. Um, any place where you can use lots of herbs and spices and different combinations. So, you know, when we did uh, Indian cooking and Mexican cooking, and I love that. Um, I love macrobiotic day because it's like, um, I, I was really deep into it years ago. So it's very nostalgic to me. What I love about macrobiotic cooking is that it's so pure and simple and it's about like focusing down on, on putting love in the food to such an extent, paying it so much mindfulness that like really simple food tastes amazing, kind of like temple cuisine, you know, that people talk about. So those are some of my favorites, I would say. If someone wanted to learn more about macrobiotic cooking, what books do you think they should pick up? Yeah, that's a tough one because, you know, macrobiotics is not uh, very, how shall we say, it's not trendy right now at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I learned from very old books, like the, uh, there's one called uh, The Macrobiotic Way by George Osawa, which was kind of like a Bible in its time. But there are all these hippy-dippy books from the 70s. Uh, <laughs> That are, they're funny to read because they have philosophy in them and they feel very much of their time in a way. Mm -hmm. um, another one that was, what was it called? Eveline Cushy, K-U-S-H-I. She wrote, uh, I think it's the Macrobiotic Kitchen. Like for people who don't know how to cook well, but we're interested in that, you know, it's very traditional Japanese cook, plant-based cooking. Like the way it would have been done very, very long time ago. Very simple thing, like how to prepare squash or how to make a zuki beans or you know, the proper way to cook rice, you know, very simple food. Um, I think that's a good place to start. When I started, I actually became macrobiotic before I went to culinary school and my food was so awful 
because I had never cooked any. That was like the first food I ever cooked. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know? I can't so imagine food, a time where your food was awful. Well, no, imagine, trust me, imagine it. Because yeah, I was just doing it from books. You know, I had never cooked anything. I really didn't grow up. My mother was not a remarkable cook. She, you know, she wasn't awful, but she didn't like to cook much. She was a career woman. So I didn't grow up in a household where lots of cooking was going on and certainly not health supportive cooking of any kind. So, yeah, I, yeah, no, I was, uh, I always like to tell students, especially ones who are frustrated with their skill level, like look at my career, but I was probably one of the worst cooks in my class out of 16 students. Um, I was like the weakest. I mean, I tried really hard. I was a good student, you know, I got good grades, but my practical grades when you had to cook something and be graded were not that great. Uh, I was kind of near the bottom of the pile. Everyone seemed to know more than me, but you know, it didn't discourage me or anything because I knew I had to be humble because like I've just never cooked before. Did you, or have you followed where any of your classmates are now? Are any of them still in the class? I'm in touch with very, I mean, mind you, when, when did I go to class? 95, 2005, 2015. Uh, yeah, we're almost coming on 30 years since I went to culinary school. I'm not in touch with any of them anymore. Um, unfortunately, I liked it. We all became, very, you know, just like your class, you know, we all became very close. You're like, you become like a family over that time. And of course, we were all stunned when it ended before we knew it. We all had to go our separate ways. Um, a lot of my class, not all classes are like this. A lot of my class didn't stay in food. They yeah. went on to, but a they lot did of other like was the same. Yeah, they did other things in the healing sphere, like you know, there are a couple nutritionists in the class, and some people. One of them went into acupuncture, and you know, they, they did other things, but. I, I think I'm the one who stuck with the food, ironically, the weakest cook stuck with the food. So That's what I always find so interesting is how does it, you know, how do they use these skills and move on with their life? Um, right. It's like seeing where different people end up um, because what you learn in culinary school obviously stays with you for life. Right. Well, Anne-Marie used to say, and I hate thinking about this because it always, um, it always blows my mind and I don't know what to do with it <laughs> because of all people for her to say this, she's like, She's like, the program isn't about the food. People are working their lives out here. And I'm like, wait, I thought it was about the food. That's why I thought, it'd be, well, about whatever. I thought it was an interesting idea. She's like, no, nah, people love this place because they're working their lives out. She's like, I love it's just that. fun to do. Yeah, I love it too. But it's like, wait, I went to culinary school. How is it not about the food? Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I do think that's true also. I do think people are working out their lives. But to say it's not about the food always makes me like, what? I don't know what to do with that. Well, it's the perfect explanation of what you experience when you're in the kitchen with family. You know, everyone's just yeah. working their stuff out and it just happens to be over a Thanksgiving meal. Yeah, that's funny. That's uh, that's absolutely true. You did. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of interpersonal dynamic when you cook in teams or with family or whatever, or with a partner. If you're, you know, in school and you work with this person, you work. Yeah, so I guess that's true. I get it to a degree. <laughs> Are there any students that you followed to see where they ended up in their careers or any? Oh, I know a lot. You know, that's the other thing. Theatrical performing students keep in touch through various, I'm really surprised as unpopular as Facebook is becoming for young people, the uh, natural gourmet page is extremely vibrant. So you can see there, people are asking each other. I mean, that school closed, you know, four years ago now and students are still exchanging 
recipes, tips, uh, job uh, leads, all sorts of things. So I, I could see people there. I see them on Instagram. People reach out to me constantly. I hear from people, um, mostly from through Instagram. People DM me. People ask me for recipes they've lost. <laughs> I can find them all. I can get, yeah, just know that if you ever... But That's yeah, I guess great. wasn't there a really good recipe for X, you know, like, do you know where that recipe is? I'm like, yeah, I can find it for you, even if it's like an old one, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've done a lot of that. And I see, I see students, former students, I see them in the media. Uh, some of them have done very well in the culinary world or other spheres. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any recipes that you like making this time of year that are from your NGI days? Huh. Um, I mean, I know what I like to make in this season. I don't really cook from recipes. So yeah. So what do you like to make in this season? Uh, I, I love roasted everything. So this is the best thing about this season. I love roasting every conceivable kind of squash. My favorite is curry, the one that looks like a little pumpkin, you know. Um, I love just roasting that in the oven with a little olive oil, salt, and pepper. I love simple food at home. I don't do, you know, the kind of stuff we do in class where every recipe has 14 ingredients. I don't cook like that at home. Um, yeah, I love making, as you know, I'm famous for miso soup. I like eating that in the autumn. I love uh, leafy greens, which in the autumn, of course, so I'm like huge on kale. I don't care what most people say about it. It's one of my favorite things to eat. So I like, I do like sauteed greens. Um, I adore grains. I know people are really grain phobic now, but whole, to me, the whole thing is it's just about whole grains. So yeah, I don't sit around eating couscous, but I love brown rice. I love millet. And those things taste really good. If you make like a gravy, I mean, a vegan one um, or something for them, you know, uh, I think they taste amazing. So yeah, I like grains. I like really hearty food, just like everybody does in the autumn. I like squashes and uh uh, like sturdy leafy greens in that, that time of year. I like soup. I love, I could eat gra uh, grains and beans together every day for my life. You know, I frequently do that for work. I'll just cook up. I'll either make kitchery um, or I'll make, you know, just like rice and beans. Uh, our version though, you know, I don't use white rice. I use, I use brown rice. I make a lot of kitchery for my clients and for myself. Uh -huh. It's one of my favorite things to make. And I do either a kitchery version with um, lentils or I do a kitchery version with mung beans. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so yeah, that's the kind of thing I like to bring to work. Um, I also love, uh, what's it called? Um, <laughs> what am I blanking on this right now? Uh, oh, kanji. I love making kanji. Uh, although I prefer it, uh, while it can taste good vegetarian, I like it with fish in it, definitely. How do you make your kanji? Do you use, do you just cook it on the stove or do you use I do. a crock pot? I don't even use a crock pot. I don't own a crock pot. Um, it's funny. I'm so used to using, I have every conceivable kind of equipment here at school, but at home I keep it pretty simple. I don't even have a Vitamix, but then again, I don't do that kind of specialty cookie. You know, I, not, I don't make smoothies. I don't, you know, I usually you make whole foods. I make them in very simple ways. So um, I don't even own a crock pot. You know, I just, yeah, ju I just soak the grain and like, and just like stew it with a lot of water for a very long time until it breaks down to, into nothing, you know, and somewhere near the end, I'll saute up like burdock and carrots, for instance, uh, and then add that into it, a touch of toasted sesame oil, and then maybe just float some fish in it just for about five, seven, well, seven, eight minutes just to get it cooked and then eat that. That sounds got a shoyu and rice vinegar in that. 
Yeah. I knew, I knew if I kind of asked, I'd get the perfect kanji recipe. Yeah. I wasn't really exactly a recipe, but yeah, simple, you know? Yeah. Do you usually let it go like all day, like six to eight hours? I don't think I could stretch it that long unless I added a ton more water to it. I do it for about two or three hours. Okay. Do that. I can slow it down that much. You have to do a high water proportion, but yeah, I've never cooked one for eight hours. Okay. Um, yeah. That sounds, that sounds like very, uh, OG. <laughs> because that's what the OG books always say that, you yeah. know, you're letting it go all night long. So yeah. that's why I had to ask. Yeah. I, right. Yeah. I've never attempted. Well, now you've given me a challenge. Now I feel like I have to try that. And see, I feel like I've been offered a simplified version and I can better enjoy the meal because it's not going to stress me out because I only have to simmer it for two hours. Yeah. I think if you soak the rice, it's going to make it much easier. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we do it in class. You make, I think we made kanji at NGI on, we um, did. yeah, Yeah. I think it was uh, food and immune day. We still have yeah, that there. And that recipe was about a three hour recipe. Are there any other foods that you recommend? So we're talking about kanji. We talked about miso soup. Mm -hmm. Those are two super healing foods for this time of year. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the other foods that you recommend people make when it's like the season of transition and sometimes they get cold or are feeling run down? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is the time, you know, in macrobiotics, we would call these yang foods or uh, contractive or warming foods. And that's, this is the perfect time of year to eat squash, which we've talked about. Um, whole grains are going to have that warming energy as do beans, you know. Um, those to me are like the most natural things to eat at this time. And of course, you know, this is a season of soup and stew. I mean, it's the, this is what your body knows this anyway. No one craves a big thick stew in like July, you know. This is the time where things that you're talking about that you can cook in a crock pot for like, you know, eight hours. Um, are going to actually be the most fortifying right now and keep you warm. Um, you know, I do believe from macrobiotics, if you just talk about energetics, this is the time where you really do want to scale back on things that actually have cooling effect, you know, um, like a lot of tropical fruit or summer fruit. Yes, all those things are available, but if you want to be warm, yeah, I feel like you should be eating cooked things now and stewed things and roasted things. Hi, I'm Chef Whitney Aronoff. As a personal chef, I created custom organic spices for my clients. These blends are of the highest quality with no added sugar, MSG, caking agents, or any junk. I want you to have the same access to good quality seasonings, which is why I've launched my line of organic spice blends. High Vibration Foods by Starseed Kitchen is my collection of chef-crafted organic spice blends made with only good-for-you ingredients. I use organic source spices, ancient mineral-rich Redmond Real Salt, prepare the blends listening to Kundalini mantra music, then charge the jars with the quartz Giza crystals for a true high vibration experience. You can now purchase my most requested blend, 11 Magic Herbs and Spices, on starseedkitchen.com. Use code STARSEED for 10% off your purchase. Can't wait for you to enjoy. When I started culinary school, it was the middle of winter in New York City, and I was having a smoothie for breakfast and a salad for lunch, like a total <laughs> California girl, and I was freezing. Right, yeah. And, and as soon as someone tells you, well, you're eating cold food, so why wouldn't you stay cold? You know, it yeah. finally hits you. Well, it's not part of any um, left brain Western paradigm to think that way. 
that food has energy because it's not quantifiable. You can't measure it. Um, <clears throat> it's just a different kind of measurement. Depending who you're talking to on my team, there are people who are like, you, you know, you know, our colleagues. Um, some of my colleagues are like, that's hogwash. You know, there's no scientific basis to those beliefs, but food has energy and it can't all be quantified. I mean, if you're listening to your body, you can feel some of these things actually. You know, yeah. you do feel warm after you eat a stew. You may not think about it, but it has a warming energy. And it's depending even more warming depending on how you cook it. The one that's cooked longer, um, more concentrated heat uh, over a long period of time has like in a pressure cooker has a more warming energy than something that's cooked quickly over heat. Um, yeah. So yeah, I believe in all of that. I Still do, too. but that's also why I have the podcast is to help share that concept with other people because um, whether they realize it or not, they're getting certain energy through the food that someone else is making them or that they're choosing to make for themselves. And right, you know, it's just it's. I think it's better just to know the concept it's, happening so you can control it. It's really hard to talk to students now. The students have changed a lot. They're the same kind of students that went to NGI, the ones that go here and take health supportive, but they're, um, they lean more into Western evidence-based nutrition now, really? which, yeah, which I think there's a lot to learn there, but I always prefer the more instinctual stuff because I feel like I can test that with my own senses. I can eat something that's allegedly has a warming or um, a grounding energy or yang energy. And I can like determine like how I feel after I, I like that. I like that. I don't have to sit there and like, you know, study bioavailability of nutrients and wonder how many, you know, micrograms of this or that, like it, I, it, that's just never called to me personally. I think that information could be useful to a degree, but it seems like I'm always hearing people argue, people who speak in vitamins and minerals, always arguing over how much you can take and what's a toxic level of it. Or, and if, if they say they, whoever they is, if an expert says a particular vitamin or mineral is useful in treating X ailment, it's like, you never know in what form you should, should I be getting it from food? Should I be getting it from a pill? If I'm taking a pill, how do I know this is the best quality pill and like how much of it should I take and for how long and how many times it's a lot. Food is so much simpler. That's why it's interesting to me, you know, and I can, yeah, I can play with that. I, you know, I, I also remember though, we had very smart people teach me when I went to school, people who didn't teach you left the school, but years ago. And I had an instructor say to me once, Ellie, you do realize <laughs> that food can't heal everything. It's like, well, yes, I know that. Yeah. But I, I must've said something that led him to believe that he's like, food can't cure everything. Of course, there's way more to healing than that. But um, yeah, if I'm going to talk about nutrition, it's easier for me to, I mean, we all know the, the rules are so simple, really. It's funny that we all go to school when we all know we should be eating mostly plants, not too much. <laughs> You know, like we all know that now that, you know, plant fiber is what's super nourishing to our microbiome, which is the seed of our immunity. It's like, it's so funny that we all paid to go to school to learn, you know, something that probably people have known for centuries, but so be it, you know. <laughs> well, share with me some of those food rules that people might not be aware of. The the basic whole um just a few of the little philosophies. Yeah, like the school's philosophy today. was quite simple. I love, you know, we always started with the basic idea of you should be eating whole food that's real. And what's a whole food? It's food that nature provides with all of its edible parts intact. And that's even important, that last phrase. 
edible part. So, you know, someone, you know, can argue with you if you took an ear of corn and pulled off the husk and the, you know, in the, well, even the, what do you call that? The silk, the silk is edible. You can make tea with that. If you pull off the husk, you know, some smart ass could say to you, well, now it's not whole, you remove part of it. Well, no, that means the edible parts are still intact. So that's a really simple rule. And if you apply it across the board, you start to see, well, yeah, the healthiest foods in the world have, you know, their brand, their fiber, their seeds in them, et cetera. So that's like a really simple rule. And we all know it almost instinctually that, you know, uh, obviously a fresh strawberry is um, going to be healthier than a frozen one. We know that, those kind of things. Yeah, food that's real and fresh. Obviously, yeah, there's going to be more vitamins and minerals uh, in something fresh. So, you know, we used to talk about that. Food that's, you know, anything that has chemicals in it, we learned at Natural Gourmet. If, you know, most of those things have side effects. Um, it's, it's just such simple stuff in a way. But then, you know, we talk about, you know, balance eating food that's... Uh, we talked about uh, at school always eating food that helps you adjust to the season like you were talking about. If you want to be warm in winter, you need to eat the foods in, in cold regions, warming food grows. And in hot regions, like to be macrobiotic in the Amazon, you could eat tropical fruit. You need, you know, in Brazil, you need tropical fruit to cool you down. It's always hot there. I've taught there, I know. Um, yeah, I hated teaching there because I don't like to be hot. I love the students. I hated the atmosphere. It was always <laughs> hot and humid. I was like, yuck. Um, I'm not much for the heat, to be honest. So yeah, I'm trying to think of the other things we've talked about. You know, and then there were the criteria that we all, things we're suspicious about. We don't know the end result, but we talked about food not being genetically modified. It's a very controversial subject. Um, nutrition has been boosted in certain foods by genetic modification. Me, I'm instinctual. I'm just leery of it. I'm not going to say I'm pro or con. I'm leery because we don't know the long-term effects of eating food that's had foreign genes injected into it. It's like, gee, I don't know. Um, I feel like, you know, we're kind of a guinea pigs in that regard. Um, and non-irradiated uh, non food, we really don't know the effects of, although I can't imagine it's really positive of uh, sanitizing food by bombarding it with uh, gamma rays. It's like, eh, I think it's gamma rays. I'm not really, but basically nuclear waste in a way. So those were the things we used to talk about, you know, um, and it goes way deeper than that. If you study Ayurveda or macrobiotics or any um, healing modality, then, you know, you can't learn something like that in months. There's years, if not a lifetime of knowledge there. People take small chunks of Ayurveda and try to specialize in that, you know, because it's so vast, it's, you know, the body of knowledge that's like 3,500 or more years old. And, you know, you can't learn it just, you know, that's the other thing, you know, the journey only begins in cooking school. You know, you have to keep learning and learning and learning. There was another concept that I always thought you did a great job of explaining that I think is important for people to learn is expansive and contracted. Oh, yeah, that's like a tough one. We spend, yeah. it's funny now, the students, I don't know if that resonates with students anymore too much. I was one of the few people left who could talk about it too, because over time, a lot of teachers who were interested in macro have fallen, you know, like remember Chef Jill's gone and Chef Sue. So like, I was like the only one left who really liked to talk about this. But, you know, you know, we, there are foods and when you consume them, 
literally make us feel expanded and foods that, you know, like you can feel that in your stomach. You can also feel it in your mind. Obviously, you know, alcohol and drugs, people talk about, oh, I, you know, drugs, I want to expand my mind. So alcohol does that. Um, coffee is expansive. Um, and it's a very difficult concept because what's better to be expanded or contracting? Contracting food in a positive way can be grounding too much or contractive energy because it's not just food. Too much contraction can make you rigid. So you have to find this balance. Um, but it's understanding what things make us feel expanded. Like sugar is very expansive, like ultimately one of the most expansive things. And to know what you need to do, what contractive food, which are usually things um, that, yeah, contractive things are harder and more compact and drier and uh, heat. These are all characters of contractive and expansive things are usually wet um, and cold and, uh, or they have a co cooling energy. And like knowing how to balance those things is a very, very like deep discussion. But once you start to play with that, like when you eat sugar and you see what it does to your mind, um, you know, at first there's like stimulation as you start to get this outward expansive energy, but it keeps going if you keep eating it to the point where your energy is very dissipated. And like, how do you bring that back to a grounded point? So, yeah, I, I like to, yeah, get me started on that. I'll go all day. But uh, yeah, I used to describe personalities. I think you may have yeah. gotten my speech about presidents and history, expansive and contractive times. Like the Tao is what they call it in China, um, expansive and contractive energy. And you see it in every single living thing in the universe. So history expands and contracts, people expand and contract, uh, <laughs> political styles expand and contract. Yeah. And I love, um, you had also explained how you feel working in the kitchen, that sometimes with all the heat going, and if there's multiple people in the kitchen, you start to feel contracted, and then you step yeah, the outside of a hot kitchen. kitchen. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Please explain. Yeah, I know. Well, that's relevant to our industry very much, which is the kitchen is like almost an ultimately contracted workplace. It's usually small, which is contracted, like a contracted environment. Um, it's usually under pressure is very contractive uh, as opposed to expansive where pressure is released. Um, there's a lot of time pressure in the kitchen. There's heat. Heat is a contractive energy. So you're under pressure with time. You're under stress, which is uh, a certain kind of uh, contractive energy. Yeah, it's just this super. And what happens to people who work in commercial kitchens is when they're finished, they've had so much contraction like so much focus, focus is very contractive. Um, so much focus, so much speed, so much heat, so much pressure that almost categorically, you have to do something to release that. And that's why so many kitchen people drink after work or turn to substances and why a lot of people in that industry ultimately, because the more extreme an energy, the more extreme the energy, the opposite energy is to balance it. So people who are extremely contractive at work need to do extremely expansive things to feel balanced. So they drink or they take drugs or, you know, um, they stay up all night and party. Yeah, it, it just, it, see, it all makes sense when you think of it that way. I think so too. And it also plays, I think another theory that you had shared with me was the boomerang effect that um, if you want to do a cleanse, you need to slowly move into it or you're going to just bounce back like a boomerang. So if you go, if you're eating normally and then tomorrow you decide to fast for seven days, um, when you break that fast, you're just going to 
go back your old way too hard instead of gently move into it. Right. Yeah. A lot of people don't think about, you know, fast can be very useful if you do them intelligently. And that's just about, yeah, uh, as many days as you're on a fast, because you should really go by instinct. As long as you don't feel hungry or, you know, deprived, you can keep going. When you start to feel hungry and deprived, you should start to wind the fast down. But that doesn't mean like, okay, I'm done now. I'm going to like Burger King and I'm going to get a double cheeseburger tonight. That will probably make you sick. Um, yeah, generally, if you're doing like a plant-based fast, if you're just drinking broth or something, uh, if you're on it for five days, you should slowly come off of it for five days. You know, maybe fortify the broth with some more vegetables, then eat some grains and beans, and then, you know, slowly return to um, a more moderate way or a more moderate way of eating instead of like just binging, which we do in America. We love to binge and purge. Yeah. Let me, let me detox so I can retox. <laughs> But maybe this will information will will help who is ever listening. So the next time you decide so. to do a cleanse, it's a little more gentle. Yeah. There's also we're in a time now, I don't think it's particularly healthy, where we assume everything in our insides is filthy and needs to be people really, you know, most people who were intelligent about things like fasting and detox would do it, you know, seasonally, like in spring and autumn. And now people are like. I feel like scrubbing up their insides every day of their lives. You know, it's like, you know, everything in moderation, right? That's the other thing that we yeah. pay money to learn when it's, we already know that, but I guess it's better when someone else tells them. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, on a lighter note, mm. what are some of the restaurants that you're loving in New York City right now? Oh, this gets me into so much trouble at work. Does it really? Uh, yeah, well, you're, you're I think, in the best place in America for food. So fill us in. I understand that too. I have to tell you, my favorite place to eat in New York is here at school. There's so much love. As you say, the same thing about natural gourmet. The, the plant-based food we make here at school, it doesn't taste as good anywhere else in the city. I'm sorry. Uh, when you go to a commercial, we go Restaurants are for entertainment. I don't mean to bash on restaurants, but you know, food can be really good in a restaurant, um, but you don't get the same, like I can't feel quite a life force in that food. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel healing to me. There are places I have occasionally, there's one place where I felt the food almost felt homemade and not almost, it did to me. And I felt like that food had soul to it. Um, it's this place in East Village called Divya's Kitchen. It's a, um, an Ayurvedic restaurant. I don't know if I would have ever picked it. A friend invited me for lunch there. Yeah. And the food was simple. Once again, kind of templish type of cuisine. But I just felt like, I'm like, this food is beautifully seasoned. It's carefully cooked. This rice is perfectly cooked. They made bowls, basically. You would pick things and they put that in the bowl. You know, like these vegetables are beautifully roasted. There are a lot of places, I'm not gonna name them. I'm not gonna bash on places where you can get like, quote, healthy food here, even takeaway. And it's just like these vegetables are so over roasted or they're not roasted enough. Or, yeah. Um, you could just feel that, you know, someone had to hurry to make them. And that's the thing about, um, I like Divya's Kitchen. If I'm eating more omnivorously, uh, I would have to say Gramercy Tavern is my favorite place to have something fancy. Um, uh, I'm friendly with uh, Neil Harden from ABCV. His food is very beautiful and I think mm -hmm. it has a lot of love in it. I like to eat there. Um, 
but you know, I like junk too. Like I love pizza and things like that. So there are places I like to go occasionally have pizza. But if I were to talk about, you know, healthier food, I don't know, to be honest with you, if vegetarian and vegan food is showcased best in a restaurant setting. I would almost rather have it homemade every time or like the students make it. I, you know, I, I still go into the health supportive culinary kitchens here all the time to uh, beg food because the food is really good. Um, they did Seitan Day the other day and they just, I don't know, this particular group just did a really beautiful job with it. It was plated beautifully. Somehow they made it colorful because, you know, Satan's basically brown. Mm-hmm. Everything was garnished beautifully and had pretty colored sauces on it. And it just looked so appetizing. Then I tasted it and I was like, you know what? If this were a restaurant, this would not taste as you. I couldn't find this quality of Satan in a restaurant. Who invented the process of Satan? Well, yeah, no one knows exactly if it was the Chinese or the uh, Japanese, because there's a tradition of making it in both countries in more traditional cuisine, not modern cuisine, but both countries have their version of it. Um, I'm pretty sure it was probably invented by accident. I think someone left a bread dough in a bowl and outdoors and it rained on it all day or something. And they were like, Oh, look at this. It's starting to look like rubber a little bit. What let's keep washing it and then I don't know. And then somebody no, no. Yeah, it's just so, one of those mystery foods. Um, sorry, somebody was like waving at me. No, that's okay. Um yeah, is it one of those mystery foods? Yes. We don't have like a con I've looked everywhere. I cannot find a concrete history of this. That's all right. It's one of those that just magically appeared for right. I'm just grateful it's there. Yeah. It's funny, I used to eat it. it I, I would see it on the menus everywhere back in the early 2000s in uh-huh. all the healthy restaurants in LA. Um, so any vegan, vegetarian, macrobiotic restaurant in LA, it was everywhere. And now I, I rarely see it. Yeah, it was weird. To, it's still in the program. It's weird to see it played it so beautifully because sometimes it just looks like, to be honest, like a turd. It's brown, you know. I know it's not very it's not exciting. Pretty color. I love the taste of it. it. You know, it tastes like ginger and shoyu and garlic, you know. Well, to wrap things up, if somebody mm-hmm. wanted to learn to cook in a health supportive way, where do you recommend people turn to? Um, are there books that you recommend? Are there online programs that you recommend? How can someone learn to cook in a more healthy way? Well, you know, uh, gosh. There are so many of our students are now teaching online. I have to tell you, I wouldn't be interested in doing that. I know there are a lot of programs online, like Ruby has plant-based classes. Um, uh, You know, uh, the big culinary schools are all doing plant-based programs online. I don't, it's hard because I haven't evaluated those programs. I like our program, by the way, uh, here at ICE, but, you know, I'm partial, of course. yeah, it's interesting. There's so many more places to do that. I'm a little confused because so many things aren't live anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't personally want to learn that way. I don't want to go out and buy ingredients and stand in my own kitchen, which isn't, you know, 100% supplied like a commercial kitchen and, you know, watch a video and find, but I mean, that was a nice thing during COVID that people could do that. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to recommend right now because I only know this. I've not worked at other school. I know Matthew Kenny 
has courses. I don't know anything, you know, I haven't ever worked with him in it. I actually worked for a restaurant of his several years back, but I've never worked, you know, with his team and uh, instruction. Students say good things about it. Uh, he's had many different programs. Uh, other schools have fallen by the wayside that used to be there. Used to be a place called um, Bowman College, I think, mm -hmm. in Northern California. I don't know if that's still around. Um, yeah, so it's like a whole different, the, the landscape is shifting really quickly. I'm not sure what I would recommend. I don't know anyone who has an online course that I've actually reviewed or looked at, so. What about cookbooks or cookbooks about food? Any favorites that you recommend? Uh, I don't have one. It's so weird. I've taught from a program that never had a book, you know, it was just people's knowledge up here, some lectures and some recipes basically. Do you have a cookbook that you found useful? And So the one book that I've always referenced since uh -huh. I got out of culinary school is um, Rebecca Woods, The New Whole Foods Encyclopedia. Oh yeah, we used that in school. Yeah, I love that one. Just if, um, if you just want to learn, okay, why am I picking up this rutabaga to put in a, a soup or a stew? Like, right, there are know, good tips for that there. It's good tips on how to use that rutabaga and then also mm -hmm. what that rutabaga is doing for you. And I feel like sometimes when you know the benefits of the vegetable or fruit, it makes you more excited to eat it. Um, I got you. Yeah, no, I, I haven't thought about that book in years. Um, yeah, I don't have like a recent cookbook that I've turned to. The internet has changed everything so much. I mean, it's not completely reliable, but you know, sometimes you find gold there. Other times it's just like, this doesn't look anything like that picture. And I swear to God, I followed this, your, you know, word for word. Yeah. So hard to say, I think it's, I don't know. I'm an advocate of learning cooking from people uh, in person. You know, that's what made it live for me having great teachers. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I, uh, I studied macrobiotics from books and my food was awful. Uh, yeah, when I went to school, I was like, it just was a totally different dimension. I guess I'm making a pitch for learning cooking with people, not alone. No, it's absolutely the it's best. It's sensory, so to learn it from a book is difficult. Yeah, and you have to see how other people handle the food or handle a knife. Um, and oftentimes the recipe's missing that one tip that would work for you that, you know, um, yeah, I remember once I couldn't reproduce some recipe of another teacher and I was like, well, how long do you cook it? And he, he answered me in like this, like, well, you should have, you should have known like, like until blah, 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 like that. And I'm like, well, that's not what the recipe says. You know, like if you had said that, I would have, you know, I was getting it wrong every time I made it. He was kind of like, what don't you get? Um, so that's the thing about recipes. Well, kind of the where, cool thing. Yeah. Where can people learn more about ICE or the Health Supportive Culinary Arts Program? Um, and well, you know, uh, if you're in New York, you of course can come visit and our admissions team will be happy to show you around. That's their job. And that's where they make their money. But also, uh, you know, you can learn about it. I would look just because we're now in a time more than ever uh, where the visual matters. Look at our Insta, you know, um, uh, Ice Culinary, I believe we are, is our handle, just Ice Culinary on uh, Insta. And look at our uh, look at our um, our feed there and the pictures there, and you'll see. I don't think there's a specific HSCA feed for that, but uh, uh, I'm trying to think if our students post anywhere else. Yeah, that's how you would learn more probably about our program. Is Instagram is where I would start. And then, of course, the website's very easy. It's ice.edu. And it's not the bad ice, it's the good ice. <laughs>
Well, yeah. thank you, Chef Elliot. Um, yeah, I thank so you, Whitney. appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was much. great to see you. You look fabulous, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll keep in touch. Okay, dear. Bye-bye.